0: show that is all baseball
1: they're better than they were a year ago
0: this is the baseball hour with tony maz brought to you by jackson lumber and millwork bigelow Tea, gravely zero turn lawnmowers the 99 restaurants sing-sang cocktail in a can win waste innovations and woodbridge Wine. on boston's home for sports 98.5 the sports hub I think when you have a chance at the playoffs, a real chance, even if it's not the chance you were hoping to have, or even the chance that we had a month ago, that's not something you you, you take lightly. Um, and, you know, we wanted to do what we could to, to bolster that chance and still do the right things for the organization. And at the end of the day, we weren't going to force anything that, that didn't uh, fit those goals.
1: All right, again, that's Ian Bloom from the trading deadline a couple of days ago talking about the decision-making of the Red Sox as they enter the stretch run here of the 2022 season. And again, that, that whole comment, right, that whole comment of, well, you don't want to take anything lightly. If, if you have a chance at the playoffs, you do not want to take that lightly. We didn't want to uh, force anything that was going to take away from those goals. Is that kind of hollow, Jim Murray? Isn't that hollow? Yeah, feels when, it. When you say that you know the you you don't want to take the opportunity to make the playoffs lightly, you don't want to do that. Yet I don't feel like the Red Sox really did anything to improve their team. They added a couple of pieces on the cheap.
2: At very best, they went sideways. I heard you use that term last night with Jared Carabas, and I I agree. Like I, I don't think that they gotten any better. But at the very at the very best, they just went sideways. I yeah.
1: Think. So look again, and 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 now there are all types of other issues that have popped up with High and Bloomier. At this trading deadline, most specifically uh, the connection between him and his clubhouse or the lack of connection between him and his clubhouse, which has brought me to a, a conclusion, a comparison or maybe a contrast, depending on how you look at it, uh, as we open the baseball hour tonight. So, 617-779-0985. We will open up the phone lines right away because I want to get also to the uh, the releasing of Jackie Bradley Jr., which you may may or may not have heard already, but the Red Sox have released Jackie Bradley. He is no longer part of the organization. This too relates directly to High and Bloom, who reacquired Bradley in an offseason trade for Hunter Renfro, which frankly looks like a disaster. Uh, and I say looks like was a disaster. It failed in every way imaginable, but, but imaginable rather. But let's start with High and Bloom, and that is. This uh, comparison or analogy that occurred to me this morning as I was, uh, you know, we were getting ready for the show, we were prepping for the show, and I'm talking about Felger and Maz now, and a name popped into my head regarding a high and bloom that should frighten you, and that is the name of Paul D. Podesta, who is the uh, assistant general manager With the Oakland A's, when Billy Bean was running the Oakland A's, Moneyball became all the rage in Major League Baseball. And again, rightfully so. The A's did a tremendous job when they ran that organization. And for those of you who saw the movie, Paul D. Podesta was the guy essentially played by Jonah Hill in the movie. Okay, He was the computer guy. He was the analytics guy. He was the guy that ran the numbers. Uh, You know, again, he had a different name in the movie, and he didn't look anything like Jonah Hill. Okay, Paul D. Podesta was
3: Was uh, in much better
1: shape. What's that, Jimmy? Was it Peter Bland? It could be. I, I, I don't remember, Jimmy, what the name of the character was. But he was based on Paul D. Podesta. Paul D. Podesta, as the, you know, second or third in command under Billy Bean, then went to the Los Angeles Dodgers and became general manager of the Dodgers. And it was a freaking disaster. It was a disaster. And not because Paul D. Podesta was dumb or uh, incapable of running a uh, baseball operation or what have you, but because he didn't necessarily have the people skills to make it all work. And I bring this up now because there is the chance, okay? There is the chance. And I'm not telling you I believe this. But there is the chance in this whole thing that High and Bloom is going to rebuild the Red Sox farm system. It might take longer than we thought. And that he's going to re sign Rafael Devers, maybe or maybe not, because ownership demands it or what have you. But that the Red Sox are going to get better from the inside out. There is that chance. Paul D. Podesta never got to see the end of it because there was such a massive disconnect between him and his baseball operations that he was fired within two years. And. I don't think ever became a GM at baseball again. He ended up going to work for the Cleveland Browns. I want to say he is their chief football decision maker, but you never or rarely hear from Paul D. Podesta. And I remember when Paul D. Podesta became the effectively the general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers at that time. That uh, I remember talking to uh, someone in the Dodgers organization who said that. You know, early on in DePodesta's tenure, when they were introducing him to people in the organization, they summoned all these people out from the different affiliates and what have you, different scouts, people who had played for the Dodgers. And I, I used this analogy earlier. I don't remember if Sandy Koufax was in that group or not. Okay, so let me just say that up front. But remember that the Dodgers are one of the most storied franchises in the history of the game. So they brought all their baseball decision makers into one area. And Paul D. Podesta basically sat off to the side and didn't talk to anybody. That was it. Because he just did not have the social skills, the communication skills, to be able to connect to everybody and make them believe that they were all on the same page and headed in the right direction. He just didn't have any human leadership skills, is what I would call that. Now, look, again, I don't know if Chaim Bloom does or does not. I haven't dealt with him enough to know that. What I will tell you, though, is that inside the walls of Fenway Park, there's been a lot of grumbling lately. There's a disconnect between Bloom and the clubhouse, and I'm starting to whether, wonder whether the same thing is going on at Fenway that went on in Los Angeles 25 years ago, whatever the hell that was, with, uh, with T. Podesta. Maybe it was 20 years ago.
2: Yeah, mid-2000s. Probably.
1: Yeah, but you get the idea. The, the point is, a GM, aside from making the right decisions...
2: Has to have some kind of human element to him.
1: You have to be able to sell your operation on it. The people inside your building have to believe in you and they have to believe in what you're doing and they have to believe that, you know, they have a say and there's going to be some connection. There's a, you, know, they, you, you have to get their buy-in. You have to get their investment. It's an important part of leadership. And so we can look at some of the other people and say, do they have the, they have the charisma to lead? Do they have that sort of capacity? And again, at the end of the day, it's going to be about the decision-making. But I think Theo Epstein had some of those leadership skills. Dave Dombrowski had some of those leadership skills. Ben Charrington, believe it or not, was not as dynamic, and maybe the answer is ultimately no, as a result of it. But I think Ben Charrington was a guy that knew how to uh, you know, to speak with people, communicate with them sincerely. With Bloom, I don't know that he can. And I'm not calling him a liar. I don't mean that. I just mean that he has a hard time with it. Maybe. And again, if we were making good decisions now, we wouldn't care. But when you don't make good decisions, and inevitably every executive goes through that, and then on top of it, some of your decisions start to blow up in your face, well, now you have the perfect storm for a disaster. And uh, we'll see what happens here with the Red Sox down the stretch. I said this the other day. I'll say it again because my opinion and my mind is not going to change in the next several weeks or months. High Bloom is now facing the most important, call it six months of his career as a Red Sox executive. If things don't get significantly better in the next six months, and I mean that with, with regard to roster decisions, and it's really going to be less than that, depending on how the offseason goes. It might be four months, but you get the idea. Let's call it six. His next six months as a decision maker are going to affect his, his future dramatically. Because if the Red Sox are in the same spot, one year from now, that they are right now, without an improvement at the big league level and no significant signs of a player development operation that is feeding the big league team, people are going to be calling for his head, and his owners might be right there with him. So again, six one seven 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 nine zero ninety eight five. That's where I want to start tonight. We'll get to uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. as well. We'll do that in the next segment, and then also just we, you know, we did some of this on Felger Mas the last couple of days, this idea of what the modern executive in baseball wants to achieve. What are they looking to do? What are they looking to win, particularly in the smaller markets where they are basically running numbers and uh, you know calculating odds over periods of time? Have the Red Sox become that, and what does that mean? We'll get to that a little later in the show as well. We'll kick it off tonight with Martin, who's in Texas. Martin, go.
2: Hey, uh, Tony, I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> maybe indecisive isn't the best word, but that's kind of how I feel about Bloom. And I was wondering what you think it would take for John Henry to step in and kind of uh, steer him in the right direction or make decisions for him, whether it be re-signing Devers or Boggers. Let me know what you think. Thanks.
1: Okay, so look, Martin, I, I think there's you know there's got to be ongoing communication there all the time. I would imagine. I mean, maybe not as much as there used to be. So if you're asking me, would the Red Sox owners ultimately step in potentially and say to High and Bloom, hey, look, we're getting a lot of money off the books this offseason. The free agent market isn't great. We want you to sign Devers and Bogarts. Well, then, yes, he'll do it. Yes, let's not leave out the impact that the owners can have in this thing. Of course they can. Absolutely, 100%. So they can totally steer him in the direction that they want to steer him in. Uh, but at the end of the day, they brought him in for a reason. And that reason was to find diamonds in the rough, rebuild the system from the inside out, and all of that's fine. The problem is that I'm not sure that Bloom has even done that in the time he's been here. So I keep saying this over and over again, but let's examine the biggest deals he's made. Mookie Betts, regardless of whether he wanted to trade Betts, and I'm sure he did not. Who does? He was responsible for the return. Alex Verdugo, Jeter Downs, Connor Wong. And Jeter Downs, they identified after Brewster, Greater Wall, after uh, the owners stepped in and said, we're not going to take a guy who's got uh, potential for elbow injury on the pitching staff. Jeter Downs has no, Jeter Downs can't play. And I'm not just talking at the big league level. I don't think he can play a triple A or even double A, which is scary. Andrew Benatendi, that deal, Franchi Cordero, Josh Winkowski. Is Winkowski a big league pitcher? Did they get anything out of that deal? Feels like a swing man to me. I don't think they hit on that deal. And, again, Hunter Renfro for a couple of minor leaguers and Jackie Bradley. Disaster. Jackie Bradley released today by the Red Sox, no longer part of the organization. The Red Sox went into this season needing bullpen help. They wanted to trade their right fielder, and they needed a first baseman. They traded their right fielder and got no help. They got no help in the bullpen, and first base has been a disaster for going on two years, although Eric Hosmer will finally join the team tonight. So you had to wait this long to address obvious needs on a team with a $240 million, $235 million payroll? I mean, I don't know where else you look, but the way the world at the roster was constructed and the general manager. 617-779-0985. We'll talk about that Renfro Bradley deal
3: and get to your calls when we... Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music.
0: This is the baseball hour with Tony Maz on 98.5, the sports
1: hub. Bradley Jr., a high fly ball to right. Reddick is at the wall. Can only watch a grand slam. Jackie Bradley Jr., a knockout punch here in the eighth.
3: Eight to two,
2: Boston credit to him because at this level when you're hitting 180 after two months or i think it was three months it is hard and he kept showing up he kept working he, he kept working his craft and uh, now you see the results
4: it's huge you know, we're playing a really good team uh, in houston runs are at a premium we never feel like enough runs is it going to be enough so you know it was, was very very special for us.
1: That was obviously from four years ago, and I think that, uh, you know, unquestionably the highlight of Jackie Bradley's career with the Red Sox in the 2018 American League Championship Series, Bradley had two home runs, nine RBI, and a double. He was named MVP of the LCS. The, 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 The funny part about it, if you want to call it that, he had three hits in the series. He went three for 15. He hit 200 in the series, but the hits were huge. Huge. So, uh, but again, when you, you're a guy like Jackie Bradley, that's a fair trade. If you're the Red Sox, you'll take that. He'll hit a few big hits, play some good defense. The OPS was very high, even though he hit 200. And they ended up being uh, critical hits in what was a five-game win over the Astros and the LCS. That was the peak of, uh, at least, you know, in terms of the uh, a signature moment. To me, that series was the, the signature highlight of Jackie Bradley's career, he's gone, and the deal is really the one that will haunt. As much as we, you know, people like to criticize Jackie Bradley, these types of moves, whether it's Jackie Bradley, Francie Cordero, Josh Winkowski, Connor Seabold, go up and down the list. We, you can get mad at the player if you want. It's really about the deal and who made it. So Jackie Bradley was what he was when the Red Sox reacquired him from the Brewers. He had 163, 164 last year, whatever the number was. So I just want you to think of it in these terms from the Red Sox perspective. We're grading high in bloom. The Red Sox were, were two wins away from getting to the World Series last year. Two wins away. They were among the top teams in production in right field in the American League. Hunter Renfro was coming off a year in which he had 31 home runs and 96 RBI. Now, I said this to you last year at the time. I still believe it. Hunter Renfro is overrated, particularly defensively. He was a gold glove finalist. He's not a gold glove caliber outfielder. But his stock was high. If you're going to move Hunter Renfro, you should be able to get something to help the club. I like the logic. When they acquired Bradley, I thought Bradley was going to be a fourth outfielder. I thought Bradley was going to be a bench guy. Someone you could put in for defense, someone you could play against occasional right-handers, all of that. I thought they were going to sign Seiya Suzuki and put him in right field. That didn't happen. And now you look back on the deal and say, what did you get out of it? And the answer is nothing, and you lost across the board. So first of all, you lost Hunter Renfro's production. Jackie Bradley came here and didn't hit. You bought two prospects in the deal basically by admittedly downgrading in right field. Okay, and those two prospects, Alex Benellis and David Hamilton, are both struggling at double A right now. Neither one has had a good year. Neither one. So, there, to, to this point, anyway, there has been no future game. You didn't make your organization better, as was one of the goals, and as Bloom said, with regard to the trading, uh, uh, to the trading deadline. So you lost in the short term, you lost in the long term, and you lost financially. Jackie Bradley cost the Red Sox twelve million this year, plus there's a buyout in there, I think. Yeah,
2: an eight million dollar buyout for next year. I'm glad you brought this up. So he made nine and a half this year actually. Okay. And eight million for a buyout next year, so that's seventeen and a half. And just for comparatively comparatively speaking, I don't know if you were going there with this. Renfro this year seven point six million. Andrew Benintendi eight and a half. So together, those two Renfro and Benintendi, who are better players, made sixteen point one. They made less than Jackie Bradley Jr. Again, you're counting that buyout for seventeen and a half.
1: Perfect, Murray. Perfect. Thank you. And so, now the idea was: well, you take on the extra money because you're getting the prospects. Except they can't play.
2: Right, it's not worth it.
1: Okay, so so you didn't gain anywhere, and you increased the payroll in the process. So the owners are going to look at a move like that and go, wait a minute. You didn't even save me money on this deal? You cost me money? So those are the kinds of moves. Now, it's a small one. Okay, this wasn't a blockbuster trade by any stretch of the imagination. But that's one that will leave a mark, because you failed in every area imaginable in that trade. Every area imaginable. You gave up production in the short term. You gave up. You got no gain long term, and you cost the team. Let's call it ten million dollars. Right. Okay. If you just kept Renfro, you'd have paid him seven something. Now again, I was all for moving Renfro, but you get the idea.
2: Yeah, seven six was his salary. Renfro.
1: That trade was a disaster. And when I said the twelve million, Bradley's um, luxury tax number, I think was twelve million this year. But the actual cash, Murray, you're right about. They paid him over $17 million <laughs> for four months in a Red Sox uniform. Those are the ones, if you add those up, those are the ones that get you fired. Uh, Anthony's on the Cape. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not a great deal, but don't act like Benelis is nothing. He's got, like, 20-plus homers, 60-plus RBIs. One of the problems was when they put him in Portland, they stuck him in the leadoff spot right away, and he started out, like, Ofer for, like, he was horrible, so they moved him from a middle of the order guy to the top of the order guy. Listen, Anthony,
1: I, I Anthony. The minor so listen, Anthony. He's batting one thirty nine. All I said was in double A. He's having a bad year at double A. That's a fact.
0: Yeah, he's in double A, but you, you, he was also in high A ball before that. And the thing is, the guy's a good ball player. Give, I mean, he's you, you can't get too caught up on these minor league stats. Okay, now. You keep mentioning Benatendi. So I was going to talk about Vasquez. I hate Vasquez. I've always hated Vasquez. I think good riddance. I just wanted to say that. I know John Farrell hated him. I think anybody who thinks he's like a great player just doesn't know baseball. But let me ask you a question because I don't think anybody's brought this up, and it kind of just came to me in the last couple of days when you're talking about it. Do you think Andrew Benatendi, because I know he kind of ducked out of 2020, and obviously he's not vaccinated, do you think that was part of the reason why Maybe they traded him because he he wasn't going to be vaccinated. And do you think the Red Sox just have it out for anybody who's not vaccinated?
1: Uh, no, because Benintendi was traded. When was he was he traded before twenty twenty? It was before the pandemic. It was before the pandemic. So I, I don't think that you can necessarily draw that line. My answer is no. And uh, look, with regard to Benellis, Anthony, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to fight you on this one. Like you know, well, he's a good ball player. How do we know? And the A ball numbers—if you suck in A ball, you're not a player at all. Like if you can't play well in A ball, forget it.
2: No, he was here in 2020. It was February 21. He got traded.
1: Okay, so uh, so he was here in the pandemic here.
2: Yeah. yeah, Anthony's right. He was one of the guys that that like kind of like half-assed it that
1: year. Okay, so I don't I don't even remember that. It goes to tell you plenty. Uh, and the vaccination thing. See, now, again, when did the vaccine come out? I don't remember all that. I don't think that was it. And look, again, let me make something clear. I'm not against trading Andrew Benatendi. I'm not against trading Jackie Bradley. I'm not against trading Christian Vasquez. My question is, where's this going, and who are they getting back? These have all been bad moves. For Benatendi, they didn't really get anything. They had Benatendi and Verdugo who were uh, pretty much copies of one another or something close to it. I don't think Ben a great ball player. I don't think Vasquez is a great ball player. What's your catching situation like now? So the the team didn't get better. And if they got something in the Vasquez deal long term, I'll give Bloom a win on that trade. In the same breath, I will tell you, what's the goal? Is the goal to win trades and make quote-unquote shrewd moves? Or is it to win games at the big league level and win championships? And I think sometimes a lot of these modern executives tilt too far in the wrong direction. And that is they put the long term over the short every single time. I feel like the Red Sox have done that repeatedly this year. And they did it again at the trading deadline. At the big league level, they moved sideways. Organizationally, they added a couple of minor leaguers. Maybe they'll pan out. But the emphasis was on getting the minor leaguers. Kevin is in a car. Kevin, go ahead.
5: Hey, Maz. Uh, look, if you're Devers, what's your incentive to stay on this team at this point, right? Like, they can offer him a contract, and, uh, you know, these guys only have so much time to make money, and they only have so much time to win championships, which I think we can all agree they all want to do. And, you know, if he doesn't take a big contract, he's going to get equivocal pay, if not better, in free agency. And I think just based on and Bloom's comments the other day, like, it doesn't sound like he's interested in winning now for a championship anyways – or in the near future. So I'm just curious to see what's going through Devers and Bogarts' heads uh, while their contracts are pending, and curious to see what you have to say.
1: Yeah, look, there's no way they can be in a good place right now, and that has to hurt the signability of those players, at least right now. Now, could it be different in a couple of months? You go to Bogarts, and again, Devers isn't a free agent until the end of next year, so we'll get to him shortly. Uh, But if you go to Bogarts in a couple of months and you say to him, okay, we'll give you what you want now, but he can also get it somewhere else. Is he now of the mind to say, I don't want to be here anymore because I don't think we're going to be good enough. I'm going to go play somewhere else. My goal is to win. I've always wanted to win. That's the goal. I mean, he did stay here for less money before, I think in part because he thought the Red Sox were a big market team that could win. And I think it also means something to him to stay with the organization. I don't want to minimize that. I've said that repeatedly. Derek Jeter was his idol. Jeter played one position for one team his whole career. And I think that that would mean something to Bogarts. But Jeter always believed the Yankees could win. That meant something to him. That was the whole goal. And if you've watched any of that Derek Jeter documentary, the whole thing he says over and over is, I want to win. But my whole goal always was to win. I just wanted to win games. I wasn't interested in the numbers. And you would have loved that if he played here. You would have loved it bogarts i think is cut from the same sort of cloth so is he now going to look at it and say look i'd like to be here but if we're going to do it this way i'm out i don't want to be here anymore well then you've got a problem and again this gets back to that what we were talking about at the beginning of the show the leadership the buy-in high bloom is losing the buy-in he's losing the buy-in of the manager and his coaches He's losing the buy-in of his uniform personnel, the players, and he's losing the buy-in of you, the fan. He's losing your buy-in too. I can't tell you how many texts I've gotten from friends in the last couple of days looking at it saying, what are they doing? And they just sound like they're from a lot of fans. What are they doing? This guy doesn't know what he's doing. I'm still not sure that that is true or untrue. You know, but Bloom's about, you know, he's three years in now. And this could turn around. He could start. He had a good year last year. So it could absolutely go in the other direction. But, man, I mean, you're talking about the series of moves that have happened this year and the emphasis that's put on the long term over the short. People are going to start questioning whether it's worth it. And I, I don't need to share with you the TV ratings that we had today earlier on Fogel and that indicated yesterday how badly the Red Sox got beaten by Ellen and Family Feud while they were on, uh, on the air yesterday. Maurice, get your headlines when we come back. <laughs> we get, it's a great show. <laughs> it is a, it's, like a, it's, it's also an iconic theme. Right? Oh, yeah. You hear it, you know exactly what it is. But the, uh, when we come back, the, the philosophy that most or many executives in the game have now I think we can spell that out for you in a soundbite we have uh, from a podcast, which we'll do when we come back Grandpa here on the, uh, on the baseball this hour. This is my little
3: brother George. This is Bobby Pig. And this is Daddy Pig. BackstageCountry.com, your online home for all things country music.
0: this is the Baseball Hour with Tony Maz on 98.5 The Sports Hub.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, going back to the conversations we've had about Preller and Elias, if you look at the most, uh, analytically inclined teams, Elias being one of the more extreme toward that direction, they will commonly, teams like this tell me off the record, oh, we're looking at five-year championship odds. We're trying to keep payroll flexibility. Like those, and then you hear like wins this year or wins the next season further down that list. Now, Heim Bloom in Boston, I think is closer to that Elias end of thinking than AJ Preller, the ultimate YOLO GM for our times, who is just like, we're going all in at all times. I, I can't even really explain what they're doing. They're just going for it. And then these other teams seem to be doing the exact opposite thing. And it seems to be, to me, unnecessarily complicating. Are we trying to win baseball games or not?
1: So to me, that is sort of the core question with High and Bloom. What's the goal here? Are you trying to win games? Are you trying to win trades? Are you trying to make shrewd moves? I mean, you see where I'm coming at with this, Murray, right? Like it it is, you know, at some point, Again, a buddy of mine said this to me a long, long time ago. He said, at what point did we stop rooting for teams and start rooting for GMs? Right? And I thought about it. And this is the perfect case of that. Like, wh- when did it become, you know, this whole thing with fantasy sports and somewhere along the line, you everybody who played fantasy sports says, oh, I got a good boy. I'm going to make this move. I'm going to get that move. I'm going to get this person. And the whole goal, like somewhere along the line, we confused that with the actual real game and what the goal was,
2: yeah, change from being an armchair athlete to an armchair GM,
1: right? Exactly, exactly. And so, and and look, Moneyball contributed to that. Totally. This whole idea of Bill, you know, it's cost per win, and Billy being got more wins per dollar spent than everybody else. Well, okay, so more wins per dollar spent—that's great. Did you win any championships? Like, what's the goal? So it became a business competition and not a baseball competition. And I think that's what's going on with Bloom and with the Red Sox. And you, you heard, um, uh, Jimmy, what's the kid's name again? I'm sorry that you just played. Kylie it's, McDaniel? Uh,
2: Kylie McDaniel from ESPN. It's labeled ESPN Stat Nerd. I didn't do the Okay, del- <laughs> the <label>. <laughs> so <laughs> It's pretty appropriate. So that
1: was on ESPN uh, during the trade deadline special on ESPN the other night.
2: I was on real TV.
1: Okay, so so Kylie McDaniel explaining that, like, you know, a lot of these moves are going in the opposite direction. What's the goal? Is the goal to win games. Now, if you're not in it, I get it. You sell. I mean, that's been true forever. And you get the logic. You trade the present for the future because in the present, you don't have a chance to win. But the Red Sox did. And, and this idea, I do feel sometimes, many times, that High and Bloom is more interested in making the shrewd deal as if he were in a small market than he is on making the deal that would serve his big league club. And, again, business-wise, it's probably smart. But baseball-wise, and when I say baseball-wise, you're not giving your team the best chance to win at the big league level this year. You're also affecting the psyche and motivation of your players at the big league level. They're now looking at it going, what the hell am I busting my ass for? I mean, if we're not going to win, we're just here to play, well, then don't accuse me of like just wanting to cash in on the payday. Why should I sign here? I'm going to free agency. My goal is to cash in. That's the goal. I want more dollars for my years of service. I'm going to treat it the same way. I'm going to treat it as a business model. And you know who really gets jobbed in this whole thing? You. You. Because you're deprived of the chance of seeing a team win a championship, which you take great satisfaction in, and which at the end of the day is why you watch. And so you lose that? Well, what's the point of watching the freaking games? So that is just, you know, I'm just mystified by the whole thing. And just quickly, and then I'll get back to your calls. One of the things they lay out there is that your odds of winning in a five-year period meaning they take the whole five-year block and they say your chances of winning in that five-year period from 20 to 10 to 2015 are 8.3%. So we want to keep it at 8.3% all the time. And then on one of those years, you're going to win. Well, so that means that in 2010, in the early part of that five-year period, you're going to make the decision for the next four years – not for the next one, because your chances of winning in the next four are going to be better than they are in the next one. It's like it's like just keeping. You know, you buy more lottery tickets because you have a chance to win, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. If you because you might never win unless you go all in at some point. And look, it's hard. It's a balance. It's hard. Dave Dombrowski went too far in the other direction. But this idea of let's just keep our odds the same for a five year period means you're never going to make a risky move. You're just never going to do that. Dave's in a truck, Dave, go ahead
4: Hey man. How are you?
1: Good. So you
4: keep uh, referencing Heim Bloom to Paul De Podesta. I'd like to reference John Henry to Jeremy Jacobs. He's running his playbook. he's telling Heim Bloom. Get me a team just good enough to get into the playoffs. Give me the gate for a couple of home playoff games. Get me the concessions for a couple of home playoff games. If we get lucky and we win a World Series, then that's great. But if we don't, I don't think John Henry Kiss. He got his gate. He got his concessions. He got into the playoffs. I think he looks himself in the mirror and says to the Boston fans, I got your full World Series already. Now i got to start looking for the bottom line. I think the days of the Red Sox going after the big fish, Maz,
1: are gone. Okay, so listen, Dave, you might be right about that. Let me ask you a question. What about the Patriots? Do you think they're any different?
4: I don't think they're any different. I think they're following the same playbook. Bill Belichick's showing that. I don't know if he's lost his edge or if his desire or if him and Kraft don't have a great relationship anymore, but it just seems like they're all running the same playbook. Just, you know, maybe a uh, team good enough to get me into the playoffs, and, and we're happy. Same thing with him. He's won his Super Bowls. Kraft's won his. Maybe everything, all these guys are just concerned about the bottom line now, maybe winning secondary.
1: Okay, again, so the reason I only ask you that, I I ask it to you that way, is because I I happen to agree with you. I think they're going to run it as a business. At the end of the day, you know what I want from my owner? I want his money. I want his money. And I used this line the other day, but in my case, Murray, I want his money in more ways than one. I would like to also be paid yeah, if I could just somehow swing that one. That's a, that's a pretty nifty deal, but, but you get the idea. So, look, I'm not going to argue with you on that point. Are they as motivated to win as they were 20 years ago? No, I don't think they are. But do I want a guy coming in here who's going to cut the payroll in half and run it like the Oakland A's or something like that? My answer is no, I'll take the money. I would like an executive, though, that can balance the short term and the long. And, look, they hired the guys, so, again, they hired who they wanted, But I'd be willing to bet that this is not exactly what they expected. Frank's in Boston. Frank, go.
5: Yeah, hi. Sorry to get you a little off topic. I wanted to talk about the four-strike thing last night, which is driving me nuts, and I haven't heard a peep about it from anyone. So are you aware of what happened? Yes. Okay. Fine. The umpire screwed up, but that also means the Red Sox pitcher didn't know it, the Red Sox catcher didn't know it, the whole Red Sox team in the field didn't know it, and no one in the Sox dug out, including the coaches, manager, the whole deal. No one was paying attention. It's an analogy for the whole season. They have their heads rammed up their keisters. It drives me bonkers. Hey, Frank, okay, did the,
2: did the hitter know it?
5: It doesn't matter. It happened to me before. I sat there and played dumb because all I do is strike out all the time anyway.
1: Okay, so again, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about the big leagues where when a guy strikes out, he walks back to the dugout because everybody knows it. The Mar- hitter was
2: Jordan Alvarez. I know, yeah. And so, I mean, he had to have known. Of course
1: it's- he knew. No, no, I bet you he didn't know. I no, bet you no, he but didn't Mads, know. The
2: sequence is it's there. he's at 1-1, and he fouls one off the third base, so he knows he's at 1-2. There, he definitely knew he was at 1-2, and then it's right down the pipe, kind of high. Rich Hill throws the strike. It gets called a strike. And he kind of steps a little bit back. He knew. He definitely knew. He just stayed in the batter's box because the
1: ump didn't call out. Okay. So again, I'm telling you though, I've seen these occasions where everybody in the ballpark zones out. It's weird. I don't know why it happens sometimes like this. Like, but but they don't catch it. And I don't know if it's like something about the sequence that throws everybody off or what or something happened. But and I'm not telling you it's right. I'm not blaming them. the Red Sox. Whiff too. I'll put them on the list. I'll tell you, the guy that I'm surprised that didn't pick up on it was Cora. Cora usually doesn't miss a thing. Yeah, right. Right? Cora's usually right on it. He'd be barking from the dugout. They all whiffed. It was the weirdest thing. I've seen the opposite, too, where a guy gets three balls and walks and nobody says anything. (laughs) Like, it's bizarre. Totally bizarre. And look, if you want to tell me some sort of indication the Red Sox have checked out, if that's what Frank's getting at, how do I argue that? I mean, somebody
2: should have picked up on it. Yeah, it's but uh, so even, I think even, you've mentioned what the ratings were that day, and granted we were on the air, but we're half paying attention to that game. Like, I didn't see tweets about it in real time. It took until, like, the night that I was like, what the hell was this? I was kind of watching that game during commercial breaks. I don't remember this. So you know what
1: happens, too, is a guy in the field, and they zone out, too. A player in the field zones out. Then he sees it, and he goes, isn't that strike three? And then, oh, I must have missed one. Yeah. Right? So baseball loves you to sleep like that. And, again, which is a flaw in the game. (laughs) right? Like, uh, you know, God knows I've done it. Uh, Sean's in Salem. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, Cora was probably
5: still trying to figure out how that pop-up didn't get caught, too, the pitch before. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a messy situation. But I was talking to someone that was heavy into analytics within the front office, and the explanation he gave me on the modern GMs and what they're trending towards was the first time I actually heard a plan that made me think. And it's developing at the major league level and not, you know, usually September is the time for call-ups with prospects. But if you're contending for the playoffs, you don't have that luxury. So, you know, because seating don't mean much, they're trending towards using that first 100 games as using time to give young players consistent playing time. Even if that means starting the season with holes in your roster. Then at the deadline you add and you put your best version of your team on the field to play for that 60-game stretch. Now I think Bloom could be doing it. It doesn't seem like they're fully committed based on what they did at the deadline, but it's something we've seen with Atlanta and other teams where they're using the meaningless games to to furlong, you know, to bring up their prospects, and then that last sixty to really focus on the playoffs.
1: Yeah, and Sean, I don't think this is all that out of the ordinary either. Again, the old adage used to be you use the first third of the season, April and May to assess what you've got. You use the next third of the season, June and July, to make additions and changes and tweaks to your roster. In August and September, you run for the finish line. Okay, so it's a, it's another version of that, although now instead of you know going out and making trades or whatever else, you're waiting for the guys in your system to develop and you're adding them to your roster at the end of the year. That's to, Look, that's how they did it in Tampa Bay, go back to 08. They brought David Price up at the end of the year and he was a weapon in their bullpen That helped them beat the Red Sox and the LCS. So, yes, 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 yes. You're absolutely right about that. Do the Red Sox improve their team from within at this deadline? Because I don't feel like they did. I don't see anybody coming up from their system that's going to have a profound impact on who they are. I don't think they have that guy. Again, you can do it maybe in Tampa where there's 8,000 people in the stands every night. And, you know, people are watching the games on TV, but it's not the same kind of pressure environment. Can you do that in Boston? That's asking a lot. Now you're playing before 37,000. Can you do it in New York? Like, that? that's that's a hard trick. So some places it can work, others it can't. Whether or not it can work here, I don't know. We'll find out. I hope it does. Again, I don't think this year is the year to judge it. I, I, I believe me when I tell you, this is not, I hope Bloom figures this thing out, turns him into a factory. They start pumping out players. That's what we all want. But, man, it's hard to look at the last couple of years at first base, you know, right field, and, uh, and feel like they've made good decisions that have served the team at the big league level because they haven't. We'll wrap it up with your calls when we come back.
3: BackstageCountry.com Your online home for all things country music Award winning movies often have incredible soundtracks And many of those have gone on to become country gold We've picked our top 5 country songs that have been nominated for an Oscar Text OSCAR to 45911 to see if your favorite made the list on BackstageCountry.com Text OSCAR to 45911 and we'll send the link straight to your phone This is the Baseball Hour with Tony Maz on
4: 98.5 The Sports Hub.
1: We'll see if we can squeeze in another call here again. Red Sox in Kansas City tonight. Eric Hosmer has joined the team. He will be in the lineup tonight uh, as your first baseman. Our buddy Matt's in California. Matt, what do you got, pal? Hey, Tony. Uh, it's pretty
5: apparent in our eyes that Bloom is failing in all aspects of his job. But Do you think that, you know, in, in John Henry's eyes, he's on track? Like, is he doing everything that Henry wants? And if not, what would it take, you think, to actually get him out the door?
1: Okay, so I would say that last year they were in a good place. They came off a good year. They got to game six of the LCS. Uh, and that they were very much tracking. This year has gone completely in the other direction. So, you know, am I ready to pull the plug now if I'm Henry? My answer would be no. I'm not ready to pull the plug. Let's see where we are at a year from now. Uh, so, you know, what's it going to take? I think it's going to take a, you know, a prolonged stretch where you fail. Uh, you know, and I think of it as the Ben Charrington. Ben Charrington won the World Series in 2013, finished last in 2014. 2015, they were finishing last again. Dave Dombrowski came in. That was it. He didn't, make it through, uh, he didn't make it through another year. So I, I think it would be something similar, like that sort of path. And the thing that I find alarming about Bloom is not the fact that he's traded guys uh, or, or even the money part of it. What I find is that if you're going to adhere to this philosophy of longer term versus the short, fine. But then I need to see the results in the minor league system. I don't feel like the Red Sox minor league system is getting all that much better. I mean, the biggest piece he's added is Marcelo Mayer, who is the number four pick in the draft. And then some people thought the number one pick in the draft. Well, the only reason they got that player is because they suck so bad. They get the highest pick in the history of their franchise. I'm not banking on that again. And they're never, I don't think they're going to suck that bad where they get the number four pick. You follow me? It's the other moves that have not come through. Uh, quickly, John and Acton, but you've got to go fast.
2: Yeah, hey, Tony. Uh, certainly fans should be concerned nothing happened at the deadline. Uh, looked at what the Twins did. They traded five of their uh, first six picks from the 2021 draft. We got three pitchers for their major league roster trying to you know, win this year. And what struck me about that is it seems like they're not valuing the depth in their minor league system. One less minor league team, you know, uh, with all the short-season team's gone, you know, is depth in the minor league
1: system really is important and are we better off, you know, should the Sox be trading some of that depth to get major league talent? Yeah, so again, that well that's the $64,000 question. And I'll, I'll leave you with this. Is depth in your system important? Of course. Yes. What's more important in your system is being able to produce regular front-end players. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do without high picks in the draft. But maybe you can pluck them from other organizations, whatever it is. But if you can pull guys out of your system that can be everyday big league players and every once in a while hit on a superstar, fine, no problem. Right now, I don't feel like the Red Sox are doing that. And that's the part I'd be worried about with Bloom. Again, if the system were getting built, no sweat, great. The Red Sox went through this in the late mid-90s. But then when they got prospects, you know what they did? They traded for Pedro Martinez, and their history changed. So, you know, it's about winning games at the big league level, ultimately. Uh, Jim Murray's got your headlines here. Uh, uh, Jimmy, is it is it Jones and Arcand again? Yes. Okay, yeah, Jones right. and Arcand, having for the balance of the night. We'll catch you tomorrow on the baseball hour.